Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, and again, I want to welcome everyone here, everyone watching from home. Again, we have a lot of sickness t- today, sadly, so please be in prayer, especially for Robin Hopper in the hospital, but for everyone who's sick with the flu or cold or Omicron or whatever it may be. We're continuing in our series in the book of Mark. Today is part 35, and we're going to look today at Yeshua's trial before the Sanhedrin. So turn with me to Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. Mark 14, 53, we have it on the overhead as well. Uh, they took Yeshua to the high priest, uh, and all the chief priests and the elders and the Torah teachers came together. Uh, the chief priests uh, and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Yeshua so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even then, their testimony didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before him uh, and asked Yeshua, are you not going to answer? What's this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Yeshua remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Yeshua, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Then they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. Uh, They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is the account of Yeshua's trial before the Sanhedrin. And there's nothing more dramatic than to be on trial for your life. And there's no more dramatic moment in the trial than when the defendant himself is called to testify. And there's never been a more dramatic, shocking testimony than what Yeshua gives here in this passage. So on the overhead, we're going to see three things in this passage. Number one, that Yeshua is the judge. Number two, Yeshua is the judge who was judged. And three, if we understand these two things together, it will change your life. So first, the trial. The prosecution's trying to make a particular charge stick. The Yeshua had called for the destruction of the temple. You know, if Yeshua had threatened to destroy the temple or called for others to destroy the temple, that would have been an act of sacrilege, of blasphemy, of vandalism, terrorism. But Yeshua never did that. He only predicted that the temple would be destroyed, which of course it was in 70 AD, but he never called for it to be destroyed. And since he never actually said these things that they charged him with, when the witnesses came to give false testimony, these witnesses, never actually having heard Yeshua say these things, their testimony did not agree. And so they couldn't, it couldn't be accepted by the court under Jewish law. So the case really should have been totally dismissed at that point. But there's nothing about this trial that was legal. There's nothing about it which was just. It's a miscarriage of justice uh, uh, from the the beginning to the end. 
Here's a list of just 10 illegalities on the overhead, 10 illegalities in the trial under Jewish law, as documented by Alfred Edersheim in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and as confirmed by a non-believing Jewish scholar, Chaim Cohen, in his book, The Trial and Death of Jesus. So here are just 10 things, illegalities. Number one, the Sanhedrin cannot try a capital case, they could not try a capital case outside of their regular meeting place on the Temple Mount. Yet here, the judges assembled in a private home, the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Number two, capital cases had to be tried by daylight. But here, Caiaphas and his court convened at night. Number three, no trials could be held on the Shabbat or a holy day or on the eve of a festival or a Sabbath. Neither could the Sanhedrin conduct trials during the entire month of Nisan, the month of Passover. But here, Caiaphas and his court conducted the trial on the very eve of Pesach, during the month of Nisan. Number four, in a capital case, the court could not declare a guilty verdict the same day as the trial. But the court of Caiaphas came to a verdict in less than one hour. Number five, in a capital case, when the testimony of witnesses proved to be false, the judge nullifies it and punishes the witnesses. But here, the court of Caiaphas ignored the false witnesses that were revealed by these circumstances, by the cross-examination. Uh, number six, in a capital case, the court appointed a defense attorney to defend the accused. Yeshua had none. Number seven, the accused is not allowed to incriminate himself, but Caiaphas made Yeshua's own words the basis for the verdict. Number eight, before standing trial, the offender must have been verbally warned by two witnesses that the deed he was about to commit was a crime. This did not happen. Number nine, in a capital case, the senior judges vote last to avoid influencing the court. But here, Caiaphas voted first. And number 10, in a capital case, a unanimous guilty vote must be declared a mistrial. But in the court of Caiaphas, they all consented to the verdict. This was indeed an illegal kangaroo court, assembled in Caiaphas's private home in the middle of the night on the eve of a festival in order to quickly uh, railroad Yeshua. And Jewish scholar Alfred Edersheim concludes like this on the overhead. All, the Jewish, all Jewish order and law were grossly infringed in almost every particular. The trial should have been dismissed, but it wasn't. Instead, Caiaphas, the high priest, illegally put Yeshua on the witness stand to force him to testify against himself. And he asked Yeshua this in Mark 14, 61. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, in popular Jewish expectation at the time, the Messiah would have been a human Davidic king who would rise up to help Israel overthrow the yoke of the Romans. So when Caiaphas asked Yeshua, are you the Messiah? He's not asking him, are you God? Are you the son of God? In the sense of the real son of God. No, rather he's asking him, are you the Messiah we're expecting? And Yeshua's response is astonishing. Uh, first, he says, yes, I am. Uh, I am the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. Now, now, throughout the Gospels, Yeshua had referred to God as his Abba, as his Father. Uh, and the Pharisees were disturbed by his intimate father-son language that he always used. Uh, they, they charged in John 5, 18, that by calling God his own Father, he was making himself equal to God. But Yeshua doesn't even stop there. 
because he says, I'm a Messiah infinitely larger than whatever you bargained for. Uh, so first, Yeshua says, I am. As we discussed a few weeks ago, this is a direct reference to the divine name in Exodus 3.14, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. We see Yeshua using the divine name. We see him using it not only in the Gospel of John, which we discussed a few weeks ago, but here in the Gospel of Mark as well. And not just here, but other places in the Gospel of Mark. So for example, in Mark 6.50, Yeshua's walking on the water. His disciples are terrified, and we read this. Because they, they all saw him and were terrified, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, even though it's translated in our English versions as, It is I, the literal Greek says, Ego eimi, I am. Yeshua walked on the water, spoke to his terrified disciples, saying, I am. Walking on the water was a divine typology in the Hebrew scriptures. Only God walks on the water. For example, in Job 9, verse 8, it says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So we have Yeshua doing what only God does, walking on the water uh, and um, uttering the divine name. He, he said it in Mark 6, 50, and then again here in our passage in, in Mark 14, 62. And then second, he says in Mark 14, 62, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So secondly, he identifies himself as the Son of Man, which is a divine figure from Daniel chapter 7. And we read this in Daniel 7, 13. In my night visions, I looked, and behold, there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples in every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. Now note here that the Son of Man is worshipped by all men from every nation, people, and tongue. Only God is worshipped. So what does this imply about this Son of Man figure? In this heavenly court in Daniel 7, thrones, plural, are set up. Uh, and the context indicates that the Son of Man is being seated next to the Ancient of Days. Note also that this Son of Man, he's given everlasting dominion, uh, a never-ending kingdom. This is clearly a divine messianic figure. Uh, and everyone on the Sanhedrin knows exactly what this title implies. Uh, and what Yeshua is claiming uh, by quoting here from Daniel 7. And this phrase in Daniel 7.13 that Yeshua also quotes here, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven, uh, this is an allusion to the Shekhinah glory cloud that led the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. The Shekhinah glory cloud is the very glory and being and presence of God. Again, a very in-your-face divine reference that Yeshua is making about himself when he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So everyone in first century Israel knew who the Son of Man was, and yet Yeshua says, I'm the Son of Man. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God. He comes to the earth uh, in the clouds of heaven to do what? To judge the world. That's what Daniel 7 verse 9 tells us. And he says, in Daniel 7 9, it says, uh, I, I, as I looked, Daniel 7 verse 9, 
and the next head, overhead. I looked, thrones were set up, uh, and, and thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The court was seated. This is the courtroom. And, and the books were opened, the books of judgment. This is a courtroom setting in which the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven and is given all authority and power and kingship. What's happening here? He is coming to judge the earth. So the whole setting in our passage in Mark 14 is dripping with irony because the Sanhedrin thinks they're judging Yeshua, but he is really their judge. Yeshua is saying, I will come to judge the earth in the very glory and being of God at the end of time and judge the whole world and put all evil down. That's the Messiah that I am. And if there were any doubt left, <laughs> to further drive home the point, he then quotes the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, saying that he's sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, at the right hand of God. So Psalm 110, verse one, we read this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend his mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. By quoting Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, Yeshua is telling the Sanhedrin that henceforth they would see the Son of Man seated in glory at God's right hand and coming with the clouds to put down all enemies and to take up his kingship and to judge the earth. Sitting at the right hand of power, this phrase refers to the period after Yeshua's resurrection and ascension. He's now sitting at the right hand. And this phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, refers to the second coming and the establishment of the messianic kingdom. Those who now sit in judgment over him will see him sitting in ultimate judgment. Those who stood to condemn him will see him standing to condemn the wicked. And they will mourn, as it says in Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. The Sanhedrin knew exactly what he was saying. In fact, in the parallel passage in Luke 22, verse 70, they ask him, are you the son of God then? And Yeshua says, yes, I am. So Yeshua makes these utterly astounding statements if you understand his biblical references here to Exodus uh, and, and Psalms and, and Daniel. He's making clear claims to deity. And his response is way beyond anything he's actually being asked to confess. And in his response, as we've seen, he is challenging them. He's saying, you guys think you're the judges, but I'm the real judge. I'm the judge. So take heed to yourselves. Because regardless of what you do to me here, regardless of what happens, I'll be back. So he makes these, these amazing statements. And as soon as Yeshua claims deity, the divine judge of all the earth, immediately the response is explosive. Do you see the explosion? First, the high priest rips his garments which was a sign of the greatest possible horror and outrage and grief. By the way, it was also illegal. Uh, the Torah expressly forbids the high priest from tearing his garments. So look at Leviticus 21, verse 10. The high priest shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Caiaphas violates his own priesthood by tearing his clothes. In contrast, even on the cross, Yeshua's own garments remained untorn. So in John 19, 23, we read, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. 
Yeshua is our true high priest. The high priest of Psalm 110 tells us, according to the order of Melchizedek, his garment, in keeping with Torah law, was not torn. Now, as Caiaphas tears his clothes, the whole situation deteriorates. It's no longer a trial. Uh, 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 these are distinguished jurors and judges, and yet they go nuts. Look at Mark 14, verse 65. Then some began to spit at him, uh, and they blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists, and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. They're spitting on him, beating him, uh, in the middle of a trial. <laughs> they go berserk. This is in keeping with Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheek to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. It's amazing how the, how the scriptures predict everything that happens to Yeshua. And then we see uh, there's, there's this explosion when Yeshua claims to be God the judge, coming to the earth to put down all injustice. So that's point number one. Yeshua is claiming here to be the judge of all the earth. And I want you to see how explosive this claim is. When Yeshua claims not just to be a great teacher, but the divine judge of all the earth, it's explosive. So first, it's explosive uh, intellectually. He's claiming that in him, the ideal has become real. Uh, the general has become specific. The absolute has become personal. Uh, the universal has become a particular. The infinite unapproachable has become someone you can literally hug and embrace. And, but secondly, it's also explosive uh, personally as well. You know, we Westerners, we like to keep our options open, right? Uh, we like to be able to change positions, change our positions to meet evolving circumstances. So here's an illustration. In football, why does a quarterback fake a handoff to the running back? Because he's trying to get the linebackers on the other team to commit to the run. He wants the linebackers to rush in to get off balance so that when he actually passes, the linebackers are off balance, they can't get back fast enough to cover for the pass, so the receivers are open. Because to be committed is to be off balance. To be committed means you're moving in a certain direction, you're trusting in a certain outcome, so the linebackers, they shouldn't be committing too quickly to any one direction so they can be where the ball actually ends up. And that's how often we are spiritually. We don't want to commit. We want to keep our options open. We want to see what works for us. We don't want to close any doors. But Yeshua does not leave you that choice. His claims here are absolutely explosive. Uh, it knocks you off your feet. It forces you off dead center. Do you see the priests and the elders and the Torah teachers and the gu temple guards all go berserk, spinning at him, hitting him, screaming at him, beating him, mocking him, blindfolding him, and then asking him to prophesy who struck him? And guess what? They actually may, may be responding to Yeshua with more consistency and more integrity than you and me. On the overhead, as C.S. Lewis puts it like this, there's no halfway house here. The things Yeshua said are different from what any other teacher has ever said. Other teachers say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But Yeshua says, I am the truth and the way and the life. Now a man who's merely a man and says, that, says things like this is not a great moral teacher or a great man. 
He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or the devil of hell. You must make your choice. But we should note that Yeshua was never regarded as a mere moral teacher or a great man. He didn't produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. But there's no evidence that anyone ever expressed mere approval. Nobody ever approved of Yeshua. Nobody ever said, oh, that's good. I might try that. No, no one ever said that on the overhead because he said, I am God, I'm the judge. I have all power of heaven and earth. And when a man says that, there's only three options. You either hate him or you're scared to death of him and you run away or you fall down at his feet and say, command me. And you make your whole life revolve around him. These are the only possible responses of integrity. Anything else just means you're not thinking. Yeshua's claim is explosive. It knocks you off your feet. The one thing you can't do, you cannot do with any integrity, is to say, oh, I believe in Yeshua, and just drop into shul every so often. No. Everything in your life ought to revolve around him. You ought to be headed towards him and throwing yourself at his feet. Or to act with integrity, if you refuse to do this, you ought to be rushing away from him. But one option he does not leave you is to be neutral, or lukewarm, or, ba or balanced, so-called, uh, or indifferent. And the overhead, Yeshua says, I'm the judge of all the earth. That's point number one. Point number two, Yeshua is the judge who was judged. Of all the things Yeshua could have said when they asked him who he was, he goes out of his way to specifically say, I'm the judge. That's what this image of the Son of Man from Daniel 7 is all about. Uh, and David's Lord sitting at the right hand of God from Psalm 110. That's the image that these scriptures evoke. Why does he emphasize this role? Because he's in a courtroom. He's on trial. And therefore, by the, the choice of these texts, Yeshua is deliberately forcing us to see this paradox on the overhead. He's the judge of all the earth, who's not yet judging all the earth, but rather is being judged. He's God in the dock. There's this enormous reversal here. Uh, he should be in the judgment seat, and we should be in the dock, in chains. We should be the ones on trial. He should be the judge. We should be the ones on trial. But we human beings, what have we done? We've made ourselves the judge. And we've put the Lord on trial. And he says, the mystery behind this, me as the judge being judged, this mystery is the meaning of the universe, if you understand it. And he said, he's asking us today, do you understand? Well, if we're going to understand, we need to look at one other place in the Bible where God was also on trial. Did you know there's actually another place? It's in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness, they're murmuring against Moses and against the Lord because they can't find any water. And they come to Moses and they complain and they charge God with criminal negligence. And Moses says this in Exodus 17 verse 2, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? 
And then in Exodus 17:3, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Of course, they're ultimately grumbling not just against Moses, but against God Himself, the one who took them out of Egypt. So they complain, they murmur. So what happens? God comes to Moses and says, Have the people assemble at the rock. And bring your rod, bring your staff with which you struck the Nile. Have the people assemble at the rock and bring the rod. Do you know what that meant? That meant there was going to be a trial. Because the rod was the symbol of justice. Uh, The rod is what judges held during their trials. Uh, And the rod of Moses is the rod by which the Lord had smitten the Egyptians with the plagues. So the rod of Moses is a symbol of divine justice. So when the Lord says... I want the people to assemble before the rock. I want you, Moses, to bring the rod. That meant there was going to be a trial. Now Moses, he's probably thinking, okay, you grumblers, (laughs) now you guys are gonna get it because you put God on trial. You charged him with not caring about you. How dare you after all he's done for you? And there was a punishment, you're gonna go on trial. You're gonna get what you deserve, is Moses thinking. But when they got to the rock, amazingly, God says this in Exodus 17, verse 6. I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb. Now that language is unprecedented. Up to that point in the Bible, God is never said to stand before the people. Just the opposite. The people always stand before God. Because he's the king. He's the judge. They stand before him. But here he says, I'll stand before the people on the rock. And then he says to Moses, take the rod and strike the rock. Strike the place where I'm standing. Don't don't miss that. Which means symbolically, strike me. And when you do, life-giving water will flow from that rock. And so Moses does so. The people assemble. God stands before them on the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Out comes the water. Out comes a river of life. life Life-giving water. And they're saved. And Moses must be wondering, wait a minute, Lord. They grumbled. They put you on trial. You deserve to smite them. And by the way, lest we get too flippant about the children of Israel here, we all put God on trial. Don't you know what sin is on the overhead? Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. Sin is substituting yourself for God. When you call the shots in your own life, When you say, it's up to me how how I'm going to live, you've in essence put yourself in God's judgment seat. You put yourself on the throne of your own life where only God deserves to be. And And when you get so easily upset when the circumstances of your life don't go the way you want them to go, even though you can't see the end from the beginning, you're putting yourself in the position of judge and you've got God in the dock where the defendant stands. See, before you too quickly look down your noses at the children of Israel grumbling against God, realize we all are guilty of doing the same thing. And Moses rightly thought that we, yes, we deserve to be smitten by God. Moses was right to think this. But instead, what happens here in Exodus 17? God is smitten, if you will, and out comes the water. And Moses must be wondering, why do the people who deserve punishment instead get blessing? And to answer this question, 
I want to refer you to a play that was written in Germany right after World War II. And the name of the play was called The Sign of Jonah. Right after, not on the overhead left, take that down, I'll tell you when. Right after World War II, when the German people began to realize the magnitude of the Holocaust, it created a crisis in their society. And they asked, who should be held responsible? Who should go on trial for this? Somebody needs to go on trial for this. Now in this play, uh, they first go to the German people and they say, you should be on trial for what happened. And the people say, no, 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 it was the soldiers. Uh, they did it, they're responsible. So they go to the soldiers and the soldiers, they say, you should be on trial. And the soldiers say, no, 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 we were just following orders, it was the officers. So they go to the officers and the officers say, no, 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 it wasn't us, it was the Nazi party officials who were responsible. And on and on it goes uh, throughout the play. So everyone gets out of what they deserve by pointing the finger at somebody else. And at the very end of the play, they all say, we know how we can get out of this. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. He could have stopped it. He let this happen. He created a world in which this happened. And so they put God on trial and they find him guilty and they sentence him. And this is what they say on the overhead. Let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty. And let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. You see, they did the atrocities. But they said, let's blame God. Now, do you realize... When they pass sentence, what they're doing, they're demanding that God pay for their sins. How unjust. But yet, God in his perfect righteousness and grace and mercy has done more than the arrogance of our cursing dares demand. You see, in our arrogance, we demand that God come and be judged for our, our own sins. And in the person of Messiah, of Yeshua the Messiah, he has. Beyond anything we could have imagined, instead of coming and smiting us, he has come and borne the judgment for our sins in our place. I'm the over, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, hallelujah. I lost my place. <laughs> Why? So that we could be adopted by his grace. That's the gospel. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, Messiah was that rock in the wilderness who was struck so that we could get the water of life flowing out of, out of him. And on the cross, Yeshua took your sins upon himself and, and died as your atonement, as your substitute, so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. And, and, and we see this laid out beautifully in our passage here in Mark 14. Yeshua says, even though I deserve to be the judge and you deserve to be in the dock, I've substituted myself for you. So on the overhead. Sin is substituting yourself for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for you. Sin is taking upon yourself the prerogatives only God deserves. Salvation is God coming down and taking upon himself the penalties that only we deserve. And again, on the overhead, Yeshua says, I'm the judge who's going to deal with evil. But here's how I'm going to do it. 
I'm coming not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. I'm coming not to smote you with the rod, but to receive the stroke that you deserve on the overhead. I, who deserve to go free, will be condemned by justice so that you who deserve to be condemned by justice will go free. And then next slide. Now, if there's no judge, what hope is there for this world? If there's no divine judge, evil wins. But if there is a divine judge, what hope is there for you or for me? Because we're all guilty before the divine bar of justice. Because why? Because he knows everything you've ever done and everything you've ever said. He knows your motives. He knows the secret intents of your heart. He knows your inner thoughts. He knows your heart to the bottom. He's seen every second of your life. Who can stand in his presence? No one. So on the overhead, if there is a judge, there's no hope for the world. If there's no judge, if there's no judge, there's no hope for the world. Evil wins. But if there is a judge, there's no hope for us. But Yeshua says, I'm the only judge you can take. You have to have a judge, but you can't take just any judge. You have to have me because I'm the judge who was judged. And therefore, now there's hope for you. It's on the overhead. Number one, that's Yeshua is, is the judge. Number two, he's the judge who was judged. And now finally, number three, if we truly, if you truly understand and embrace this, it will change your life. Because if, if Yeshua is the judge who was judged for you, this means there are absolute values. You can't just live any way you want. And yet the absolute has become personal in the person of Yeshua and received the judgment that you and I deserve. So on the overhead, here are now four ways that this truth, this, this revelation will change your life. Number one, it means you won't sit in judgment of other people or other groups. Yeshua not only had infinite power, but he gave up his power and sacrificed and died to forgive his enemies. Just as Yeshua humbled himself, we must not think we are superior to anybody else. At the very heart of the gospel is someone who lays down his life for others and loved and sacrificed for and served people who disagreed with him, who even put him to death. Likewise, we as believers, we must love and respect others, even those who disagree with us, even those who reject us. As a believer, you are saved not based on your merit or achievement, not based on your brilliance, not even based on your morality, but because Yeshua died in your place. So if you're saved, it's not because you're better than anybody else, but because of grace. Uh, and this humbles us. And this gives you the spiritual resources to look at other people who aren't yet believers and to say to them, neighbor. To love and honor and respect them and to reach out to them with the love of Yeshua. If you understand that Yeshua had to die for your sins, this immediately will destroy your self-righteousness. This will destroy your spiritual pride and your judgmentalism. Number two, if you see Yeshua was judged in your place, it means you should forgive other people who have wronged you. If there's anyone in your life who has wronged you, and you say, oh, I'm not bitter, I forgive them, but you really would love to see something bad happen to them, <laughs> that's the definition of bitterness and unforgiveness. If you'd love to see something bad happen to them, 
you're still holding on to your grudge and your bitterness. And you're, you're usurping God's role. And trying, you're trying to sit in the judgment seat. Because you think you know what they deserve. But you don't know the history of their life. You don't know everything they've been through. You don't really know what they deserve. Only God does. Only God is qualified to sit in the judgment seat. Not you. And if you still root for bad things to happen to those who've wronged you, it's only making you hard and bitter and shallow and hateful and blocking your relationship with the Lord. Yeshua had every right to hold a grudge against you and against me, but he didn't. He had every right to judge us, but he didn't. Instead, he bore your judgment. And if Yeshua did that for you, surely you can forgive others. So number one, don't judge others. Number two, forgive. Number three, stop even judging yourself all the time. Some of you are always criticizing yourself. I didn't do a good job. I'm not as good looking or, or as popular or as thin or as smart or as talented as others. I'm always failing the Lord and failing others. What is that attitude? You're in the judgment seat of your own life. And you're looking down at yourself. And if your performance is okay today, you feel pretty good. But if your performance falls short, you beat yourself up. But the only person who has the right to sit in judgment over you is Yeshua. But if you're in him, he forgave you. He did not judge you. At infinite cost to himself, he left the judgment seat and took your sins upon himself. And so in Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, it's only the Lord who judges me. I don't even judge myself. Paul says, I don't care what you think. I don't get my self-image from your verdict. I don't even care what I think. I don't judge myself. So in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Paul's saying, you know, I feel pretty good about myself today, but so what? That's not definitive. You know, Hitler had a clear conscience. <laughs> Didn't work for him. Only God has the right and the wisdom to accurately judge. And in Messiah, Paul says, my judgment day is now in the past. The trial is over. The verdict is in. Not guilty. By the blood of Yeshua. So God, stop constantly judging yourself. Yeshua loves you. He accepts you. So number one, don't judge others. Number two, forgive. Number three, stop judging yourself. And then finally, number four, Yeshua doesn't just suffer for us. He suffers with us. And he identifies with the poor and the oppressed and the powerless. He does not identify, for example, with the powerful billionaire owners of Facebook and Twitter and Google and Apple and Amazon. No. He identifies with the average man and woman who has no voice, no power, no influence, no status, no money, no fame, no fortune. Yeshua identifies with the victims of injustice and persecution, uh, who, who've been crushed by the economic and social and political powers of society. He especially identifies with those who are suffering persecution for their faith, for their testimony of Yeshua. Joanne Terrell, an African-American writer, she wrote a book about how she was raised as a Christian, uh, but how her poverty and suffering led her to lose her faith, to abandon her faith. 
But one day, she was thinking about the cross. And she wrote this in her book called Power in the Blood, The Cross in the African-American Experience. And we'll put this on the overhead. She wrote this. Yeshua, I realized, had not only suffered for us, but he suffered with us. I suddenly realized that he knows what it's like, literally, to be under the lash. He knows what it's like to stand up to those in power and to pay for it with his life. He knows what it's like to be a victim of a corrupt judicial system. Yeshua was lynched. And the people of the world who've experienced that, that, that kind of oppression, realize Yeshua is one of their own. Yeshua did not just suffer for you. He also suffered with you. He came into your powerlessness. He came into the injustice. <clears throat> he came into the oppression. And he himself experienced it. Our God is not aloof from or immune to injustice and suffering. No, he himself experienced it. And therefore he knows and relates to and cares about your suffering and pain and disappointment. And if you know Yeshua did all this for you, you will love him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Today, I want you to see Yeshua as the judge who was judged for you. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that your word tells us Yeshua is the ultimate judge. And that he's coming one day to judge the earth. And as he told Caiaphas, he's also literally the son of God. He is God incarnate and the son of man, the divine Messiah of Daniel 7. Coming to take up all rule and authority and dominion and kingship. Coming on the clouds of heaven. The Shekhanah glory of God, the glory cloud. And Yeshua, you are our great high priest. According to the order of Melchizedek, whom as Psalm 110 tells us, you sit at God's right hand right now. And, for, and one day you're going to make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yeshua, you are the judge. If there were no judge, what hope would there be for the world? And if, and if there is a judge, what hope is there for us? For if we can't stand in your presence, Lord, we cannot. But you make a way for us, Yeshua, because you are the judge who was judged. You are God in the dock. We should be on the ones on trial, but you took our punishment for us. Even as pictured in the Torah, when Moses struck the rock, we grumbled, we deserved uh, the judgment we deserve your rod, your rod of judgment, Lord. But you instead told Moses to strike the rock. And you, Yeshua, are that rock. Moses is striking you with the rod of God's judgment. This is a beautiful Torah picture of you, Yeshua. And when the rock was struck, streams of living water gushed forth. You taking our punishment brought us the rivers of life. So in light of all this now, Lord, help us not to judge others. Help us to forgive. Help us, help us not even to judge ourselves. And help us to know that you suffer not only for, for us, but with us. And we pray this all in your holy name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.